Now, this morning, um, I get to launch a brand new series that we are calling Fake News. As I said last Sunday, this has no political message whatsoever. It is all about misconceptions, debunking misconceptions of the Christian life. Uh, We're talking here about misconceptions about God or about ourselves or about what it means to, to live the Christian life. Our whole teaching team will be bringing this series over the next eight weeks. Let me let you see where it's going to be going. So we have messages on hashtag judge not, love is acceptance, waiting on heaven, no more suffering, the devil made me do it, I am just a sinner saved by grace, promise of prosperity, and then the last message is to be determined by you. Now, here's how how that's going to work. We want to let you give us ideas about the misperceptions that you think are prominent out there about Christianity. So here's how you can do it. You can go directly to this uh, web address. It'll take you straight to the page. Or you can go to our website and just click on the learn more at the top of the page. And it will take you to a page that looks like this. Down in the lower left-hand corner, there's a little box. And if there is a misconception that you would like us to address, then we would like for you just to write that in. And we're going to collect over the next three weeks all of your ideas, all of the things that you would like to hear about. And then three weeks from today, we will, for two Sundays, uh, show you how to vote on which one you would like us to do. We'll present you with all of the options and then say, okay, it's up to you. What do you want? And you will be able to vote. We'll give you instructions at that time on how to do it. And whatever you would like us to address, that's what we're going to address in that last message. So fake news is the series. These are the misconceptions. And uh, I get to launch us this morning. Uh, We really get to start with a doozy. Hashtag judge not. Hashtag judge not. Now, this this is a... A statement. The statement, judge not, is a direct quote by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 7, verse 1. It reads in the old King James, judge not that you might not be judged or that you may not be judged. Uh, you've probably seen at some point people holding up signs in protest with those words on the picture. Judge not. That's exactly what they're referring to are Jesus' own words in Matthew 7. Often they're holding a sign like this because they're protesting someone who's holding a different sign that may look like this. And right there in these two pictures, we, these two pictures capture the dilemma, right? Because on the one hand, none of us wants to be associated with anything that looks like the picture on the left side. But on the other hand, we, we have to ask the question, did Jesus really mean that we are never to judge under any circumstances? That judgment is always wrong because that's the message that this sign tends to send. What does the Bible actually say? What did Jesus actually mean when he spoke those words judge not. Now, as a hashtag suggests, we're going to be addressing this primarily from the standpoint of correcting the misconception that we are to never judge. However, because of what I just said, I would say that for all of us, this may also be a moment where God needs to speak to us 
and do some correct some course correction in our own lives when it comes to understanding what judgment really is about. So I want us to begin this morning with context. And let me just say as we launch this series that most of the time the confusion around various things in God's word starts with taking things out of context. This is something that Christians do. It's something that unbelievers do. But when you take a small piece of God's word, pull it completely out of context, you really can make it say almost anything you want. But when people say you can make the Bible say anything you want, you can only do that if you take it out of context. Because in context, God's word makes sense. And I believe that you'll see that this morning. So first of all, let's look at the immediate context. The immediate context. Jesus didn't simply say, judge not, that you be not judged, and that was the end of what he said. He went on to say, for in the same way, in the for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, we're going to dig into that in just a few minutes, but I think you can see already from the immediate context that there's something more here than simply judge not. But I also want you to understand the broader context, because Jesus made this statement in the context of what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it lays out the core of Jesus' teaching about the Christian life. It's here that we have the essence of what Jesus taught about Christianity. He was teaching his own disciples, and he was trying to help his disciples In one sense, he's reorienting their way of thinking to help them not to think specifically the way the Pharisees tended to think. Now, we know that because in 520, very early in this sermon, Jesus says these words, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You will certainly not enter the kingdom unless it does. Uh, so we, we, when we look at this, we need to recognize that uh, Jesus was specifically had in mind the Pharisees. Now, I want to assure you that when Jesus spoke those words, that uh, this, was, this would have been a huge slight to the Pharisees. Because in their own eyes, they were more devoted to God's word than anybody on the planet. They were more devoted to righteousness than anyone on the planet. And so for Jesus to say to these fishermen, these average, everyday, uneducated men, I'm expecting your righteousness to be greater than theirs, that would have been a huge affront to them. But that's exactly what he was doing. And when we come to Matthew 7, and the context of the scripture we just read, he also uses the word hypocrite, which if you look carefully, when Jesus talks about the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law, the word hypocrite is a word he almost always uses. Take a look at some of these. Matthew 6, 5. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have perceived their reward in full. Or Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Or Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Or Matthew 23, 27, and 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and hypocrites, You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I think it's fair to say Jesus had a bit of an issue with the Pharisees, right? It's no surprise that that's exactly who led the charge to crucify him not long afterwards. I mean, Jesus had difficulty with these. And I want you to see that he uses that same word hypocrite in this verse about not judging. So I believe it's clear that Jesus had in his mind the way of hypocrites when he addressed the issue of judgment. Now, in light of all that context, what was Jesus actually saying? What did he mean? Let me, let me start by actually telling you what he was not saying. First of all, Jesus was not saying that we should never use our minds to discern between right and wrong. That's one way to understand the word judgment. Uh, judgment means discernment, to determine that this is right or wrong. Jesus was certainly not telling us that we shouldn't use our minds to discern between right and wrong. Hebrews 5.14 says as much directly, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. Uh, So Jesus was not saying that we shouldn't use our minds in that way. By the way, when someone says, judge not, With the idea that all judgment is wrong, I mean, let's step back from this for just a moment. Can you see that when someone actually tells you not to judge because of something you've just said, they're actually making a judgment? They're making a judgment that what you just said was wrong by telling you not to judge. And so that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's not talking about using our mind to discern good and evil or right and wrong. He's also not saying that all behavior is personal and relative. That all behavior is personal and relative. He's not saying that. This is often the real motive behind those who quote Matthew 7. The message they are trying to send is one that says, it is always wrong to judge because moral behavior is always relative Therefore, no one has the right to tell anyone else how to live. That is a huge misconception if we are thinking that's what Jesus means by these words. God's word is full of moral absolutes in which God's word says this is always wrong and this is always right. I mean, by the, you know, we can start with the Ten Commandments, right? 
They're not the 10 suggestions uh, for you to consider if it's not too much trouble. That's not what God said. He said, these are things that are right or wrong. The Bible does not hesitate to call some things right and some things wrong. The third thing Jesus is not saying is that we should never confront an individual who is living in sin. Again, Jesus himself teaches just the opposite. I mean, actually, right here in Matthew 7, where we're reading in the very passage that we're talking about, the end of the passage is, deal with the plank in your own eye, then you will be able to deal with the speck in your brother's eye. So Jesus is clearly not saying it's always wrong to, to deal with your brother's speck. He's just saying don't do that until you deal with your own plank first. Uh, Matthew 18, 15, again, this is Jesus teaching himself. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. I do want to emphasize that. Jesus was not saying, go tell somebody else what they've done. He wasn't saying, go put it on Facebook. He said, go directly to the person who has wronged you. And if they listen to you, then you will have won your brother. But he says it's appropriate in this case to deal with a brother's sin or fault. James 5, 19 through 20 says, My brothers, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. So Jesus clearly was not saying that we should never confront an individual who is living in sin. What then is he saying? First of all, Jesus is saying here that we should not have a critical spirit. We should not have a critical spirit. The word in Greek is krinos or krinos. And it can be, it's, it's a word that we translate judgment, but it can be uh, understood with positive connotations or negative connotations. For example, as we talked about just a moment ago, one way to understand the word krinos is to simply mean it is to use your mind to discern between good and evil. That's a good thing. That's a positive thing. But it was also used for those who tended to heap condemnation on others. And that was always used in a negative sense. I think because of the context, and this is the only way you can determine which way the word was meant in this particular place, is to look at the context. In context, I believe it becomes very, very clear that Jesus was saying, don't have a critical spirit. Don't be one that is constantly going around looking for fault and finding joy and heaping condemnation on those who have done wrong. Um, in this sense, we should never judge. I believe Jesus really does mean in that sense that, that that's never appropriate to take on a critical spirit. That kind of spirit is rooted in pride and in ego. I, I believe uh, John Stott just nails this when he comments uh, in his commentary on this verse to sum up the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind but rather to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to, to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers which help us distinguish, help distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumption to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. 
I believe that's part of what Jesus was getting at, is that it is not a good thing, it's not something that we should desire to have a critical spirit. I love how Peterson picks up uh, in, in the, the message paraphrase, don't pick on people, don't jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. And let me just say that one of the things that we begin to see is that when we embrace that critical spirit, it does have a way of coming back to us. I can't fully explain it, but I can tell you I see it over and over again. When we, when I myself, when others, when we put ourselves in that place of prideful judgment, it almost always comes back on us in the end. Now, I will throw this in as well. For some people, it's not pride and ego. For some of us, the critical spirit that we may wrestle with is due to insecurities. I mean, quite frankly, deep down, we don't feel good about ourselves. We don't have a high opinion of ourselves. And so we find ourselves putting others down or thinking critically of others because somehow it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. And beloved, what I want to say is that in either case, whether it's pride or insecurities, I believe what Jesus is saying here is there is a better way. There is a way that is so much more life-giving. So come after that. Don't set yourself up to be a critical judge. Now, the second thing Jesus is saying is don't be a hypocrite. Now this, he says, complete, I mean, just straight out. I do want to remind us that Jesus began the whole section with saying that he was not lowering the bar, but actually raising it. He was saying, I want your righteousness to be greater than the hypocrites, than the Pharisees. Now, I bring that up because many times people who believe that Jesus was speaking against any form of judgment do so with this in mind. Their thought is, all of us are sinners. We have all fallen short. We have all failed. And since we are all sinners, then it's never appropriate to tell anyone else that what they're doing is wrong. But the effect of that is that it actually lowers the bar to the least common denominator. It says, hey, we can't speak to anybody about anything because we've all blown it. Jesus is actually saying the opposite. Jesus is saying, I'm not telling you to, to, to put yourself down on the lowest level and not say anything. I'm saying, live what you preach. Live the life you proclaim. What, I, what you can't do is say one thing and live another way. You can't confront something in someone that you're actually doing yourself. So what he's saying is, I'm calling you to a higher standard. I'm saying it's not enough to just know what's right and even to tell others about what's right. I'm telling you, I want you to actually live it yourself. And then when you live it, you will have the grace and the humility to be able to help others who are struggling in the ways that you have struggled yourself. Um, some of you have been through our Getting Started class, and you know a little bit about the history of our church. And one of the things that we did in the very earliest days, actually before we were even publicly uh, launched as a church, is that we went all over town asking people a question, why do you think people who don't go to church have made that decision? And, and the, the, the motive was not to find out what people wanted and give it to them. The motive was actually to find out what are the ways that the church actually stands in the way of its own message? 
What are the ways that the church actually becomes an obstacle for people who truly want to get to God? How can we address those as a congregation? And the thing that we heard over and over again, the number one response was, the church is just full of hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. Now, I will say, I heard someone say a long time ago, uh, that if you are, are looking for a perfect church and you think you found one, then please don't join it. Or, or, or you'll ruin the whole thing because all of us are hypocrites, right? At some point. Here's the thing. What, what we believe people were saying was this. Not that they were looking for perfect people. We may not know our imperfections, but people out there certainly do. They weren't saying we're expecting you to be perfect. I believe what people out there are saying is we long for you to be real. We long for you to be authentic. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was calling us to in this verse. He says, don't be a hypocrite. Don't claim one thing and live another. The power of our witness to the life-changing power of the gospel is a transformed life where there is authentic life in us and not just something that we proclaim. When we walk in the way of the hypocrite, we do incredible damage. And I think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind when he used this word picture, this, this uh, metaphor to describe what it's like when someone is trying to pick the speck out of a brother's eye and has a log coming out of their own. I mean, you got to admit, this is a crazy, crazy picture Jesus is trying to paint. But this is kind of what it looks like. And that's exactly the effect. When, we get, when we've got this huge log in our own eye and we're going after everybody else's specs, what we're doing is we're knocking people in the head over and over and over again. Hypocrisy is offensive and it does not draw people in. It repels them and causes defensiveness. So Jesus said, don't be a hypocrite. Number three, he said, don't be like the Pharisees who love the law more than people. I really think that at the end of the day, this is probably the thing that broke Jesus' heart more than anything else regarding the Pharisees. Because uh, it's important to understand Jesus was not against the law. He was not against the word that they believed in so much. What he was against was the fact that they had elevated their, their beliefs, their doctrines to such a height that they became more important than the very people they were trying to reach. And so he says in Luke eleven, forty six, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Now, I wish I could say that Phariseeism died out in the first century, but unfortunately, we have our own version of Pharisees in the church today and these are people who care so much more about church doctrine than they do people. And again, it's not, it, the truth is we don't have to choose one or the other. It really can be both and. But we know we're on shaky ground when we begin to be so much more in love with our doctrine that we don't really care how, people, how we're living with people and re reaching people with that word. So Jesus is saying, don't love the law more than you love people. Now, I want to bring in an insight, a couple of insights, actually, from another verse. It's not the one that, from which we get the, the hashtag, judge not, 
But it is a very, very important scripture in relation to this question of clearing up misconceptions about judgment. I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 15. Now, you can go ahead and look that up in your Bibles, but before we read it, let me give you the context of that, because I don't want to violate the very thing I said in the beginning and just pull a scripture out of context. Let me tell you what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul Paul has planted a church in Corinth, which is a city in Greece, but then after two years, he has gone to Ephesus to plant a church in Turkey. And now he's beginning to get reports back from the people in Corinth that things are not going well. And one of the things that he hears about is that there is a man in the church who is openly and brazenly uh, in a sexual relationship with his own stepmother. And the church has completely refused to deal with it. In fact, Paul says it's almost like you're celebrating it. It's almost like you're proud of the fact that this kind of thing is going on in your church. And and in response, Paul tells them, uh, and and this is apparently in another letter that we don't have, a previous letter to 1 Corinthians, but he tells them that they are to withdraw and pull away from this individual because he is unrepentant, because he is rebellious and refuses to repent. He says, disassociate with this individual. Well, then there are people in the church who say, well, now Paul is this, Paul's telling us we shouldn't hang out with anybody who sins. And they're using that to paint a picture of Paul as being one who is completely unreasonable and saying, you shouldn't be around anyone who sins. Well, Paul writes them back, and in 1 Corinthians 5, he addresses this specific issue. And I want you to hear exactly what he says. It says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those on the outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. The point of this passage, and the reason I bring it into this discussion is this. Paul helps us to understand that it is right and good under the proper circumstances to confront those who call themselves Christians when they are living lives that are hypocritical or contrary to God's word. He says we actually have a responsibility to reach out and to help someone see the error of their ways, to help them to change. But he then says, it is not our job to judge those who are on the outside. God is the only one who judges those on the outside. We're not to judge people who are outside of the family of God at all, but we are supposed to be dealing with our own sins inside the church. Now, what I think is tragic about this is I think in many cases, the contemporary church has flipped that completely on its head. We have been very quick to condemn those who are sinners outside of the church when we have often turned a blind eye to our own sins on the inside. 
No wonder then that the world begins to question our integrity when it comes to dealing with sinful things like this. Where did we ever get the idea that we should expect people who don't know Jesus and who are not filled with his spirit to live the way Jesus lived and the way Jesus called us to live? It's, we shouldn't expect that from the world. We shouldn't be surprised or offended when people in the world don't embrace our values because they don't know our Savior and they don't have our Savior's spirit living in them. But beloved, it is our responsibility to deal with our own sins inwardly because that becomes a trap of the enemy to rob us of God's very best. And, and, and so as we think about this, we de- let me just say, we desperately need to get this right. We desperately need to get this right. It is so important that we understand what is appropriate when it comes to judgment and what is not that it is never appropriate for us to judge those outside the church. It is appropriate for us to judge those who are in. I mean, let me just give you a very simple uh, illustration of what I'm saying that may help you to get the picture here. Suppose you are uh, in a national park, and you are in a part of the national park that most people didn't go. There are not any trails, and you're wandering in the woods, and all of a sudden you run across someone who is clearly lost, What are you going to do to that individual? Are you going to run up and begin to yell and scream at them? Are you going to start condemning them, telling them they're an idiot because they got lost? Of course not. If you run up on somebody who's lost in the woods, what are you going to do? You're going to go to them and you're going to say, it looks like you're lost. Can I help you find your way back? Can I show you the way home? And even if I need to, I will walk with you to help you go all the way back until you're safely home. Why would we understand that that's a totally appropriate thing for someone lost in the woods? But we wouldn't see the same need for someone who is lost spiritually. What they need is not someone to condemn them for being lost. What they desperately need is someone who can point them to Jesus. Someone who can show them the way home. And I believe that when it comes to unbelievers, that's the responsibility that we have. It's almost like sometimes I feel that there are people that call themselves Christians who who tend to almost find joy in condemning others. In fact, sometimes the message is even that God takes great delight in destroying wicked people. Uh, I found this scripture in Ezekiel um, What is it? And I'm jumping ahead for you guys in the back, but Ezekiel 18, this is God speaking. God himself says, do you think I like to see wicked people die? Says the Lord, a sovereign Lord. Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. God never finds joy or satisfaction in one who is lost and, uh, and is destroyed because of their sin. God longs to draw them into a place of life, and that's where we should be as well. Let me say the last point is simply this, that uh, Paul goes on to say that it is very important that we remember that the ultimate aim of confronting someone who is inside the church with, with the, the sin of their life, the aim is restoration, not condemnation. So even inside the body, where we are supposed to confront uh, sin when it's there, 
Paul says we are to do that not with condemnation, but with the aim of restoration. Paul does exactly that in the second letter to Corinthians, uh, beginning in in chapter 2, when he says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Now, we don't know for certain that Paul is speaking about the man in 2 Corinthians that he was talking about in 1 Corinthians. Many scholars do think that's exactly what he's addressing. But either way, what Paul is dealing with is someone who they've had to discipline within the church. And he comes back in chapter in the 2 Corinthians and he says, please understand that the point of that was not to condemn, but to restore him, so reaffirm your love for him. I say this with the understanding that too often the church is guilty of shooting its wounded. Too often when there are those in our body who fall, whether it's due to their own willful choices or the circumstances in their lives, and they find themselves in a place of being broken or lost, uh, at that point the aim of the church is to restore and heal. Now, if there is unrepentance, if there is rebellion, then we have to deal with that uh, scripturally. But even then, the aim of discipline is to bring them to a point of repentance so that we can restore them to a proper place in Christian community. Uh, So the idea here is one of restoration, not condemnation. Uh, Galatians 6.1 says it beautifully. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin... You who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. When I think about this whole thing of judgment, for me, the the picture of what Jesus had in mind, I think, is very, very significant. Uh, when When I hear the word judge, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word judge, I think of images like this, someone who is high and mighty. Or perhaps like this, someone who is cold and distant, maybe, uh, you know, maybe even a little smug. Or there's this. This is probably the one that we think of more. I mean, that's a good picture of what we often think of as a judge, right? Now, is that what Jesus had in mind? I mean, when, I mean, when he acknowledges that there is an appropriate time to judge, is this what he had in mind? Not at all. I think we can see exactly what he had in mind when we look at his own life. One of the great stories of Jesus' life and ministry is uh, that moment when a woman was brought to him in tattered clothes, thrown at his feet, condemned by the Pharisees because she had been caught in the very act of adultery and demanded that Jesus bring judgment on her. Do you remember how he responded? Uh, Let me just say that when John tells us this story, He goes to great lengths, not just to tell us what Jesus said, but to paint a picture of exactly what he did. So we know the way Jesus did it. And can I just share some pictures that that directly respond to the biblical story? Jesus came, and let me just see, see this, that Jesus came down to where she was. 
Here she is thrown on the ground at his feet. Jesus came to her, kneeled down to get close to where she was. Secondly, Jesus began to speak directly to her. He valued her, even in her brokenness. He looked it directly in her eyes. And then he began to speak the words. And the words that he spoke first are, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now, in the next picture, he will lift her up and he will look into those same eyes and say to her, now go and sin no more. But please understand that he spoke those words after having saying, I do not condemn you, I love you. I do not reject you, I accept you. Out of acceptance and out of love, now come and live the life God intended for you to come. Isn't that such a, such a greater picture, a more beautiful picture than the one of judgment that declares condemnation? That's what I believe Jesus says when he says, don't judge. Live this way, not the other way that puts us in that place of superiority, of greater. Let me... We're going to be celebrating Holy Communion as we close this morning. And I love that the, the schedule worked out this way. Because as we think about Holy Communion, we're reminded, you know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him might have life, and that abundantly or that eternally. But then he goes on in 3.17, says, Jesus, my Son, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And I just want to remind us that it's at the cross where Jesus gave his body to be broken and where Jesus allowed his blood to be shed to pay for your sins and mine. And let me just say it this way. And for everyone who has ever sinned against you, Jesus dealt with all sin in one place where he gave himself fully and completely to give us life. Now, I'm going to ask the the communion team to come and prepare the elements. But as they come, please continue to listen because I want to speak very directly to some of you about very different things. But can I just say that I know that there are some who are here today who have been deeply hurt by judgment and condemnation from other Christians Maybe it's come inside the church, or maybe it was just somebody that you worked with. But at some point in your life, there have been Christians who condemned you. Maybe it was before you were a believer, or maybe it's been after you believer. But there has, you have experienced judgment and condemnation at the hands of people who call themselves followers of Jesus. If that's you, can I just ask you this morning to look at me in the eyes? As I say these words, I want you to hear me say, on behalf of the body of Christ, please forgive us. Please forgive us for not reflecting the heart of Jesus to you. Please forgive us where we have failed to be what Jesus called us to be. And I want to invite you to come this morning, and I want you to receive his grace. And I invite you not only to receive his grace into your own life, but also to extend it to those who've hurt you. Because you see, the enemy wants to get you trapped there. He wants to get you trapped in a place of bitterness, resentment, and anger. Because the enemy knows if he can do that, he will rob you of everything God intended. 
Jesus says, I want so much more for you. Would you let it go? Let me be the judge. Release it to me and let me deal with that so that you can go on living. I want to invite you to come and to share in Holy Communion. Let me say that there are others of us that the Lord has been convicting us as we've heard these words. And we're aware of ways that we have, uh, we have judged others. We have not judged the way that Scripture calls us to, but rather we have sent messages that were condemning, messages that were meant to tear down. I want to remind you that Jesus died for that as well. He invites you to come and to release your pride or your insecurities or whatever it is that drives you to feel that you need to pull others down in order to lift yourself up. I want you to hear this morning that he died to give you life. Come and receive his grace. Would you all stand and just come when you're ready? These altars are also open. Feel free to come and kneel and receive. There will be a prayer team here as well. If you'd like anyone to pray with you, just come and kneel and they'll be glad to pray with you here.